Welcome to RJ Court Watch, a legal podcast produced by RH Reality Check and hosted by senior legal analysts Amani Gandhi and Jessica Mason Piclo. This episode takes a look at the explosion of so-called religious freedom bills at the states and the push by conservatives to enshrine practically everything they can under the First Amendment. The results, disasters like the Hobby Lobby decision, anti-LGBT legislation at the states, and even the measles outbreak. Amani, you and I went to law school around the same time. Is this the same First Amendment and religious liberties world you remember? Well, I sort of remember this whole idea about separation of church and state. That seems to have fallen out of fashion, apparently, as of late. Um, I find it really, really disturbing, in particular, the ways in which religion is being used as a cudgel against science. Um, and I think that that holds true when it comes to the vaccination kerfuffle with the measles outbreaks. And it also holds true when we start talking about contraception and abortifacients and the ways in which a lot of religious folks seem to think that they can just deem something to be true. And then the courts have to accept that as true. And I find that really troubling. Why is it that the you know, there has been I think a good pushback um, again by the left in particular against the religious freedom arguments um, in the context of the anti-LGBT legislation and the idea that people, you know, legislators in Oklahoma, for example, are suggesting that businesses have a right to refuse service base to someone based on their sexual orientation. And that's an argument that people seem to be calling shenanigans on. But what we seem to be sort of culturally and what the left has done a less of a good job in my opinion, is pushing back against those same arguments in the public health sphere. It troubles me that courts are no longer, seemingly no longer in the business of questioning people's religious beliefs, not not whether or not they exist, but whether or not they are sincerely held and whether they whether or not they are based in some religious precepts. So for example, you know, if we're going to talk about the Bible says homosexuality is bad, well, where does the Bible say homosexuality is bad? If we're going to talk about the Bible says or whatever particular religion I subscribe to says that uh, I don't have to vaccinate my kids. Well, where does whatever religious precept, that, um, whatever religion you adhere to say that? I actually, I wrote an article entitled, Hey, Vaccinate Your Kids. And I actually looked at different religions and what their beliefs are with respect to vaccination. And it turns out not a single religion seems to think that vaccinations are bad. There is not a single religion that that advocates against vaccinating children. So how is it the case that courts are or state legislatures are allowing people to cite religion in their effort to to deny vaccinations to their kids, to destroy herd immunity in our community. Because it's really a Trojan horse, right? It's not so much a religious objection to vaccinations as much as it's a you know, cultural objection to being told what to do by the government. So what's really interesting is, you know, you're t- when we talk about... Um, we, you know, we live in a society and in a society, we, we're, we all subscribe to a social contract. And that social contract requires us to compromise in some respects. It requires us to to let go of some of our religious beliefs if, if letting go of our religious beliefs is going to benefit our fellow men and our fellow women. So, for example, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her Hobby Lobby dissent said, 
you know, something to the, the effect of the right to swing your arm ends just where the other man's nose begins. I mean, that's sort of what we're talking about here. So the right to, to have your unvaccinated kids running wildly ends when you are putting those vac- unvaccinated children in schools and you're actually endangering the lives of other children, children who physically cannot get vaccinations because they're immunosuppressed in some way. And I find a lot of this adherence, this strict adherence to religious beliefs to be somewhat selfish. And, you know, I know that's kind of a funny thing to say, and I don't mean to say that, you know, Christians are selfish or Jewish people are selfish, but if you are willing to allow another person's child to die because you believe something that is factually inaccurate because your religion tells you to believe that, then how is that not just selfishness in the end, at the end of the day? I love your social contract point because this is what the law used to recognize when it would balance constitutional rights, right? I mean, we all have First Amendment free speech rights, but that doesn't mean we each get to say whatever we want whenever we want it. There are limits. And so the law, in my mind, that's sort of a the law's way of recognizing the reality of that social contract. And this explosion of these religious liberties arguments flies directly in the face of that. Um, thankfully, our guest for this uh episode, Marcy Hamilton, is one of the leading experts on this and really, I think, does a phenomenal job putting together the pieces of the anti-civil rights agenda in these religious liberties arguments um, and the public harm, particularly with regards to children. And um, it's just it's, it's really, I think, important that we talk about this more and more. I think it's really interesting that this is happening during the, you know, the 50th anniversary of Selma's this year. It was this weekend, as a matter of fact. So I think it's really interesting that 50 years ago, black people were taking to the streets fighting for their rights. And now we have 50 years later, lesbians, gays, bisexual, transgender people are fighting for their rights and are asking for basic human rights that other people have, which is the right to get married, the right to not be discriminated against at um, in, in an employment situation, the right to be able to go into a public accommodation, a public store or a restaurant or, or a club of some sort and be served. And what we're seeing is that religious folks, you know, religious zealots, extremists are using these these RIFRA, these state religious freedom acts in order to 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 strip rights away from people. And it just seems really, really abhorrent that that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to use something that as that is as special and personal to people as faith to strip rights from other people. We are thrilled to welcome Professor Marcy Hamilton, the Verculi Chair in Public Law at Benjamin Cardozo Law School at Yeshiva University, to talk about the explosion of these so-called Religious Freedom Restoration Acts across the states and so much more. Professor Hamilton, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Amani and I have talked a lot on this show about the RFRA with regards to Hobby Lobby and the fight over the birth control benefit and the Affordable Care Act. But the reality is, is, the, is birth control is only one small slice of the fight. Marriage equality is another. And it doesn't even end there, does it? Uh, no, these bills are really designed to apply to every law in the jurisdiction. So the federal RIFRA was intended to apply to every single law in the country, and the states are intended to apply to their own state laws. 
you recently profiled the religious exemption regime in Idaho, and I um, have, will provide a link to that post for our listeners because I think it did a really excellent job connecting these laws to broader anti-public health initiatives. Right. And I'm hoping you can talk about that a little more because, in my opinion, one of the most underreported elements of this fight over these Freedom Restoration Acts is how they can be used to undermine public health and really endanger children. Well, you know, that is really the enduring issue uh, with respect to RIFRA that uh, keeps me at this daily because very few people pay close attention to how children are treated either with respect to medical neglect uh, or with respect to uh, child abuse. Children don't vote and they really don't have much of a say. Uh, We have an increasing set of voices in the United States that are behind children But still, when they get into the legislature, they're up against powerful lobbying entities. And some of the most powerful are the religious lobbies. Uh, And so uh, when I first got started with this, when I wrote the first edition of God versus the Gavel, I really uh, was shocked to learn that the reason that faith-healing parents can refuse medical care to their children in numerous states is because the Nixon administration encouraged, in fact, coerced the states to create faith healing exemptions to ordinary medical neglect laws. Those opened the door for children not to be treated, to die, or to suffer, and they also opened the door to this idea in our culture that if you're doing it for religious purposes, it's fine. Uh, And as far as I'm concerned, if you're doing anything and it's harming children, it's just not fine. One of the issues that I think the right has been very successful um, at in this in this fight is the naming fight. And in your introduction, I called these so-called religious uh, freedom restoration acts because in the name, I think there is the implication that religious freedom was somehow under attack and or and is under attack. And I think we are seeing that now in the proliferation of these bills in response to the push for marriage equality and, and have them coming up as conscious refusals. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that and in terms of the marketing battle, I guess, um, that's being waged in the court of public opinion while we have these legal battles going on? Well, I have to hand it to the uh, lobbyists behind the referent. They chose a brilliant title because it does sound like if you need restoration of religious freedom, it must be under attack. Uh, And there's nothing a legislator would more like to do than look like they're saving people uh, and their constitutional rights. But from day one, uh, those behind this have misled the public and legislators about what the law really was under the First Amendment and what RIFRA is. RIFRA is an extraordinary standard to the benefit of religious entities that the Supreme Court, in its First Amendment cases, rejected again and again and again. The reason we have RIFRA is because the religious groups all of a sudden realized that their campaign for 20 years to create extreme rights was at an end. The Supreme Court in 1990, uh, which basically was when I was clerking for Justice O'Connor, so I saw this on the ground, the court in 1990 decided Employment Division versus Smith, and they set out that that's just not the standard. And the response to Smith, which just reiterated the law that had been in place for uh, decades, The response was irrational, but politically brilliant. 
Uh, and it took many people unawares, and that includes the ACLU, People for the American Way, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, these very liberal groups that ordinary wouldn't have give the time of day to a movement trying to undermine the fair housing laws, uh, which is where RIFRA started, they came on board. And they gave cover to the religious groups that were trying to get what they had never had before. Once the RIFRA was passed at the federal level, it and it was held unconstitutional in 1997 in a case I brought to the court, um, once it was held unconstitutional, then the group stand out to the state. And in 1997 to today, how do they sell a state RIFRA? They say that it simply is restoration of the law before 1990, and it can't hurt anybody. Uh, and politicians pick it up, and it's false, and it's really just a matter of public education to fix the problems. I really appreciate you bringing up the anti-civil rights origins of RIFRA, um, because I think that that's another element that gets... Um, uh, that is wildly underreported. And I'm wondering if you can say more to that, because I think it's really relevant, particularly now that the Supreme Court has set April 28th as its date to hear the marriage equality arguments. Right. Uh, well, the I did not learn until after I litigated the Bernie case at the Supreme Court in 1997, uh, and the court held RIFRA unconstitutional. It was only after that that I learned that the primary motivation for those you know, avidly backing the RIFRAs were the, was the concept that the fair housing laws were burdening religious believers because the uh, growing number of fair housing laws in the state would not permit a, uh, an apartment owner to discriminate against an unmarried couple, an unwed mother, or a same-sex couple. And various conservative religious groups wanted to be able to exclude those categories from their rental. And so that is where this all started. And, uh, but nobody talked about that because if they had brought that up when it was first enacted in 1993, it would have died on the vine. Uh, when it was reenacted in 2000, uh, the, uh, it went forward only with respect to the federal RIFRA and federal law. Why? Because once again, the uh, groups that should be protecting rights blinked, and they assumed that a federal refer applied to federal law couldn't hurt uh, any kind of uh, civil rights law, and they assumed that the referrals you know, wouldn't be in the states, and therefore their anti-discrimination laws would stand. And they were wrong both times. And what we're seeing now is at places like Mississippi and Oklahoma and Alabama, um, these anti-public accommodation laws coming up, correct? Right. Um, and so the money that is pouring into the pro-RIFRA uh, side is coming primarily from the anti-abortion, anti-contraception organizations, along with the uh, anti-same-sex marriage organizations. Um, you know, it's interesting, Common Cause recently published a report uh, showing that uh, the far-right religious groups, largely uh, the anti-abortion and the anti-LGBT uh, groups, were the ones that are really the most politically active in uh, the legislatures, and this is the same story. So these are groups that are trying to do two things. They're trying to keep uh, as much as they can contraception and abortion from women, and that's what Hobby Lobby was all about. 
uh, and they're trying to ensure that none of their believers have to deal with the LGBT community, uh, regardless of whether they're same-sex marriage or not. It really comes down to uh, anti-LGBT, and that's really what's sad about this current development, and they've become so uh, willing to be public about the need to discriminate against some of our public that, uh, for me, I I find it shocking that any legislator doesn't see the parallels between what's going on now and Selma, Alabama, but um, that's where we are. One of the goals that I have as a journalist is to really um, try to draw connections um, when when we have these politicized public health debates of the phony or pseudoscience that's often that's often propping up the opposition. And I'm wondering if you see a link between um, the forces uniting behind these uh, RIFRA provisions of the state and uh, you know the sort of quasi or or pseudoscience that often is um, used to back up anti-abortion legislation or even in gay conversion therapy or or things like that. Right. And what I would add to those two would be um, the vaccination issues. Uh, There is uh, a willingness to embrace information that is antithetical to medical fact and to use it for their ends. And, you know, one of the most remarkable parts of Hobby Lobby was that the court protected a belief about a medical practice that would affect all employees across the country that was actually contrary to medical fact. Um, So, you know, the the, the notion that uh, an employer can say that that contraception is an abortifacient and therefore I don't have to pay for it uh, when, in fact, that contraception is not an abortifacient, is a huge expansion in the ability of a religious believer to argue how far their beliefs stretch. Uh, and so uh, that is part of the thinking that's fueling these extreme religious liberty statutes around the country. How do you see this fight evolving after the Supreme Court issues its decision likely in June in the marriage equality cases? Well, my assumption uh, is that the court took the cases because in all likelihood there are five votes to say that the courts may not discriminate based on sexual orientation when it comes to marriage. I expect fiery dissents, but on the other hand, I think there's probably five votes for that. So where that leads us is that it's unconstitutional to discriminate against these couples in each state. What it doesn't do and can't do because it's beyond the scope of of the case is to uh, decide whether or not public accommodations laws can be crafted so as private entities do not serve these couples. Uh, and, and, and that's going to be the next wave of litigation. Uh, and I think that the, um, even with same-sex marriage in place, you're still going to have this pushback uh, by various conservative religious groups. In fact, it will be more desperate to try to find some way, uh, and the, you know, the real goal is just don't want to have to have the LGBT uh, people in our universe. They can't come into our stores. They can't come into our restaurants. We don't have to give them anything for their weddings. Uh, but, of course, the laws that are being crafted are not wedding or same-sex marriage specific. They really just say this business owner can choose not to deal with someone in the public 
if there's something about that person that violates the business owner's religious beliefs. So they're being sold as an ability to uh, keep out uh, homosexuals and same-sex marriage partners. But they're actually, by their language, just like RIFRA, they apply far beyond uh, what anybody is trying to sell it as. And in fact, they will open the door, if passed, to being able to say, I'm not going to serve you based on race and I'm not going to serve you based on gender. I'm certainly not going to serve you if you don't have uh, a head covering on your uh, head. And I'm not going to serve you because, frankly, uh, I understand that you had an abortion. So there are, uh, this is Pandora's box that's being opened, and it's an evil Pandora's box. We've seen this before. We know how public accommodations laws were needed in the South, and they're needed even more now. And so uh, there's no way that the Supreme Court will rule on that aspect, but that will be the next wave of lawsuits. Professor Hamilton, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy day to talk with us about this amazingly important topic. And I hope to have you back on because, as you said, this is not a fight that's ending anytime soon. And if anything, it will probably only get amplified as the issues um, become more into focus after June. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to RJ Court Watch, a legal podcast produced by RH Reality Check. For more of our coverage on reproductive rights and justice issues, please go to www.rhrealitycheck.org.